Uh, Psalm number 19 this morning, please. Psalm number 19. And let's go ahead and stand, please. Psalm number 19. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and is circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you again for your salvation for making it possible, for accomplishing it in us, for teaching us, for the fact that on the one hand we are saved and yet equally true we are being saved. You are in the process of saving us every day. And thank you then for your word, which is a purifying word to us. Bless our time together this morning in it. Teach us your word. Teach us about yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, again, as with Sunday school, there are just so many people gone this morning, and it's a holiday weekend. And I thought we would be benefited by turning our attention to the Psalms this morning. We will return to finish up the book of Ruth next week. Psalm 19 is perennially among our favorites with good reason. It is a wonderful song, wonderful sentiment, and yet for some people it is a little bit perplexing 
because it seems almost to be two psalms in one. Almost as if David is off in two different directions. That is not true. What really binds the two segments together, verses 1 through 6 being one, and verses 7 through 14 being the second, are that both of them are expressions of God's communication. So they're not two divergent psalms, two diverse thoughts. They're actually one thought, taken from two different perspectives. Verses 1 through 6 are what we would call in our world God's nonverbal communication. God's nonverbal communication. There is actually these days an entire field of scientific study on nonverbal communication or NVC. Academically, it actually goes back to Charles Darwin. And one of his books was called The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. In which he gave attention to the way we express emotion non-verbally. But the reality, folks, is that the Bible has recognized what we call non-verbal communication from the very beginning of mankind. Solomon recognized it. Proverbs 6.13, he winketh with his eyes. He speaketh with his feet. He teacheth with his fingers. We have most certainly subconsciously evaluating people on the basis of what they don't say or the way they say what they do say since the Garden of Eden. Scientifically, nonverbal communication is receiving messages from eye contact, facial expression, gestures, postures, body language, and touch. It revolves around not what people say, but what we see when people talk. And if I could just kind of interrupt my own sermon for a moment, folks. This is why I would caution you. I would do everything within my pastoral power to caution you. Not to engage in emotionally charged conversations via text message. Text messages are great. Let's meet for lunch. Text messages are terrible. You hurt my feelings. That is a recipe for absolute and utter disaster. Human beings communicate with each other on far too many levels simply to reduce it to a few characters and a few sentences. Nonverbal communication is critical. That's not the subject of the, te- of the text, but it is extracted from the subject of the text. In verses 1 through 6, David points out to us that the heavens themselves keep on the business of declaring God's glory and majesty without ever saying a word. They communicate, but it is not verbal. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens keep on declaring the glory of God, is what he said. It is a constant message. Whether it be a cloudy day or a sunny day, a warm day or a cold day, a spring day or a fall day, the heavens are always communicating the message of God's glory. 
The earth keeps on showing at all times his handiwork or the work of his hands. All that we see and all at which we marvel is the work of God's hands. Every animal, every plant, every flower. All that we see, every tree, these are the works of God's hands. There is never-ending communication to us about God's glory. Now, let's just take a second and talk about the word glory because one of the primary ways that it is used is that it can mean an unusual or distinctive feature. This is the way Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the stars. There is one glory of an animal and one glory of a fish. And another way they can be used is as it is used here. Glory means the outward display or the outward expression or the visible expression. The heavens are putting on display all that God is and all that God can do. And they just shout it all the time. If you want to know how truly impressive God is, says David, just simply look around. The message is everywhere. In every sunrise, in every sunset, in every rainstorm, it is always there. As David puts it in verse number 2, it is there 24-7. Day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. Without saying a word, and if you look carefully at verse number 3 without getting into a big fight with our translators, our translators have dealt with it in a very specific way by adding some words to convey their understanding of it. They say there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. In other words, there's no place that you can go where you don't hear it. And, and that's completely and totally legitimate. But it doesn't really seem to be what David is saying there. If you remove the italicized words, you have this. Verse 2, day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. No speech. No language. Their voice is not heard. It is nonverbal communication. It is a message nevertheless. It is clear as a bell to all who would see and receive it. We don't just live in an amazing place, folks. We don't just live on an amazing planet. It is not just a beautiful world, a fascinating place, the haven of scientists and researchers. It is the creation of Jehovah. It is all brought into being by the power of his speech. The God who said, let there be light, said also, let there be giraffes and dandelions. And this goes as far as we can see, verse number 4. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, their words to the end of the world. The idea of a line is like as far as the tape measure would go. As far as the human eye can see. And of course, in our world, we can see a lot farther than David could see. We have sent satellites and 
objects into outer space to study it. And every time we do that, we come back, it brings back the same message. It is a spectacular universe. A glorious universe. Their line has gone out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. What we see is absolute, unrivaled, unparalleled power. And then in verses 5 and 6, David focuses upon one aspect of God's creation. This is perhaps, in David's world, so many of his neighbors, like the Egyptians, deified the sun, gave to the sun a godlike status. Now again, folks, and I, I say this with some degree of caution, but scientifically, we know that the entire world relies upon solar energy. The sun is what God uses to keep the world going. But again, in David's world, some societies, Egypt in particular, viewed the sun as the source of life, not just light. Where does light come from? The sun. Where does life come from? The sun. David brings a little bit different perspective in verses 5 and 6. To David, the sun is not the source of anything, but it is simply God's servant. And he almost plays with the idea, folks. I mean, I didn't do the research. I I remember, I think, from elementary school science that the earth is 93 million miles away. I don't know how hot it is today. Not hot enough. That would be my assessment. I believe if I recall that somewhere between four and five billion years from now, it will burn out and we will all be dead. But notice the way David kind of plays with the idea of the sun. Right? This spectacular God who has made this spectacular universe. The end of verse number three, in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. God has built the sun a tent. The sun that is the source of all things was to David something God could build a tent for. And then every day, like a bridegroom, all dressed up, it will come out and run its little circuit. Not the source, but the servant. The sun is God's servant. It is as a bridegroom cometh out of, coming out of his chamber rejoicing as a strong man to run a, to run a race. Going forth from the end of the heaven, his circuit unto the ends of it, there is nothing hid from the heat thereof, and yet it is God's Son. Big as it is, important as it is, spectacular as it is, it is God's Son. And all of this functions within this world of nonverbal communication as impressive As the sun is, folks, the God who made it is far more impressive. That is the message of creation. That is the message of what we can see. Having been exposed to the impressive nature of what God communicates without talking, 
David now turns his attention to what God has said. Verses 1 through 6, what we can see about God. Verses 7 through 14, what we can hear from God. This is the nature of the psalm. Let us note first the content of what God said. David uses a variety of words to explain the content of God's word. It is in verse number 7, a law. The idea of the law, that is actually the word Hebrew word Torah. It is the word law actually refers to instruction. This is what should happen. This is how it should happen. And then David tells us that when God speaks, it is a testimony. Verse number 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, certain. Testimony. We know what a testimony is. If I said to you, could you recommend a good place to have lunch? And you said, hey, I had lunch at this place and they have really great whatever it is. That's a testimony. That's a testimony. God's word is a testimony. In verse number 8, the content of God's word are statutes. Here the idea is the idea of authority. God is not writing a book of suggestions. The Bible is not an advice column. The Bible is authoritative. Here is what I want you to do. Here is what I insist that you do. And it comes in verse number 8, not only as statutes, but as commandments. These are orders. I insist upon these things. Having noted the content of God's word, notice secondly the character of God's word. God's instruction to us, God's orders to us, God's testimony to us. It is perfect, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. It is complete. Folks, there is simply no decision that you and I will ever face in which the word of God leaves us without perspective. None. None. We may have to dig to find it, but it is there. It is not possible that the technological advances of our world have insulated us in such a way that we cannot find what we need in the Word of God. It's not happening. The law of the Lord is perfect. God has said all that needs to be said for all that human beings will ever face or decide. Not only that, David tells us in verse number 7, it is sure, the testimony of the Lord is sure, it is believable, it is trustworthy, it is reliable, it is dependable. You can count on it. You can count on it. If you were to ask me for direction somewhere, I can just give you an advance notice, you should not count on them. They will not be reliable. But if you ask the Lord for directions on how to live, they are reliable, dependable. It is right, verse number 8, the statutes of the Lord are right. 
They will never lead you into doing wrong. They will never lead you down a bad path. Never, ever. Never, ever will they lead you into sin. Now, the doing of right in this world sometimes has consequences God's people do not enjoy. But obeying the Lord will never lead you down a bad path. It will never turn you into a bad person, although the world will think of you as a bad person. But the law of the Lord and the statutes of the Lord are right. And it is pure, verse number 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure. There is no hidden agenda to it, folks. If I can put it this way, God's word has no spam. There's no spam in God's word. There's no fishing in the Bible. God is not trying to deceive us or entice us or mislead us. The word of the Lord is pure. One plan, one purpose, one agenda for all of us. It is the same. Notice then the consequences of the word. The content character, the consequence. Verse number seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It will turn us toward the Lord. It will turn us toward the Lord. It will make wise the simple. Verse number seven, it will give you wisdom. The idea there is for the young and the inexperienced. Not that the old and experienced don't need the word of the Lord, but let's be realistic. We here are old and experienced, have a lot more experience at finding out how valuable the Bible really is for advice. So the younger you are, let me encourage you all the more that the Bible will give you good advice. It will make you wise. It will make you skilled in living this life. It will make you happy. It will make you happy. Verse number eight, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. And by the way, I don't think that's an accident. I think everybody wants to be happy because God is happy, fundamentally happy, not fundamentally unhappy. God is happy. Human beings have a desire to be happy. The only question, folks, is whether happiness is short-term sinful or long-term righteousness. It will rejoice your heart. It will give you light. It will give you light. Verse number eight, statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It will give you the ability to see clearly. No fake news in the Bible, folks. No fake news. 
No fake news from the right, no fake news from the left. Everybody traffics in fake news, let's be realistic. No fake news in the Bible. It will generate a good and godly fear, verse number 9. What are the consequences of God's word? Its content is authoritative, accurate statutes. Its character is perfect and reliable. Its consequences are converting. It turns people to the Lord. It gives wisdom to those who need it. It gives happiness to those who want it. It gives light to those who live in a very dark world. And it will create the right kind of fear. It will create the right kind of fear. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's kind of a summary statement. It will generate a good and godly fear because God's judgments, the whole process of what he says and what he commands and what he instructs is completely and thoroughly true and it leads you to eternal life. We are people who know fear. We are people who know fear. It's the nature of human beings to be afraid. We we are, we are afraid without reason when we are little. There are monsters under the bed. Then we become adults and we realize there really are monsters under the bed. We are people who know fear. But the right kind of fear is fear that is directed towards fearing the Lord above all. And then in verse number 10, note the quality of the Bible. Content, the character, the consequence, the quality. Better than gold. Better than gold. There's just no way to get around it, folks. Verse number 10, Moreover to be desired, more to be desired today than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. Okay, I mean, let's just bring it into the 21st century. Better than money, sweeter than sugar. Better than money, sweeter than sugar. <clears throat> That's the Bible. That's the word of the Lord. And you don't want to miss that word desired in verse number 10. It is the word for covet. Folks, coveting is not a sin all by itself. It is what we covet when it becomes a sin. Strong desire all by itself is really not sinful. We do need to understand that. Paul tells us Covet the best gifts. Jesus said, I have coveted to eat this meal with you. It is not having a strong desire for something that is a bad thing. It is having a strong desire for bad things that is sinful. Covet the Bible. Covet to know it. And that brings us then to verses 11 through 14. God having spoken to us non-verbally through his creation. God having spoken to us verbally through the Bible. How should we now think? And how should we now respond? And that is verses 11 through 14. Moreover by them is thy servant warned. 
and in keeping of them there is great reward. Like the sun itself, folks, verses 5 and 6. The magnificent, mighty sun that obeys its daily trajectory, we should be in submission to the scriptures, verse 11. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. If I may split a little bit of a hair, we love to teach our elementary and high school students the Bible because we know that thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. But it isn't just simply the accumulation of Bible verses that we're after. It is accumulating Bible verses with the intention of letting them shape your conduct that we are after. In the keeping of them, there is the reward, not in the knowing of them. The Pharisees, folks, knew all the Bible verses. It is the keeping of them. And in verses 12 and 13, we should search them. Right? It's not really kind of a rhetorical question. It's a question asked in light of the content of what the character of God's word is. Who can understand his errors? This has been many, many years ago. I'm sure I've told this before. This has been many years ago. We had a student in the school. Wonderful family. They really were a wonderful family. And he was a typical boy. He was everywhere at the same time. He was all over the place. And one particular day, I had a conversation with a teacher because he was in the trash can. And the question is, what were you doing in the trash can? And the answer was, I don't know. And I realized something that day. That's probably the most honest answer that you'll ever get from some people. Why'd you do that? I just don't know. I don't know. I just, I did it. I thought it would be good. I thought it would work. I thought it would help. Who can understand his error? Do, we, do, you really, do you really understand yourself, folks? Do I really understand myself? I mean, I got over here a whole list of Bible verses that tell me all these things that I shouldn't do, and then I have over here a running conversation about, well, you did that one again. Who can understand himself? Who can understand his errors? And I think implied is that the answer is, is that the one who wrote the Bible and the one who speaks through creation, he knows. And so the prayer then is turned back to him. Right? Verse 12. Who can understand his errors? That's a question. Here's a prayer. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. The Bible has a purifying effect in our lives. <clears throat> and then in verse number 14, what is our response? Our response is, for 
to put it simply, folks, that the Bible becomes the content of our prayers. That the Bible becomes the content of our prayers. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. That part of our praying is that, right? A lot of our praying is really good and beneficial and that we direct our prayers outward to other people. We ask God on behalf of other people. That's good. But we can also pray on behalf of our own selves. And Jesus teaches us to do that, to pray for our own selves, to pray for the state of our own soul. So here is a prayer. Let the words of my mouth be acceptable to you. Speech that is governed by the scriptures. Let the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. Thought patterns that are informed by the Bible, not the world. Because God is our strength and our Redeemer. God has been speaking, folks, to the world since he made it. He does this through the glory of his creation. And if we would go into Romans chapter 1, people are condemned for seeing the obvious and rejecting it. And God has been speaking to us in his word. And blessed are those who hear it and observe it. Let's pray together this morning. Father.